Surprise! Hello again, Microbial Nation, and welcome to a bonus episode of the Micro Moment, that show that brings you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. Last episode, we said it would be our last episode, but I can't stop, won't stop with bioterrorism. We had one more story of bioterrorism I just couldn't leave out, so we bring you this final, for reals this time, episode of the Micro Moment on bioterrorism. Today, we discuss Amerithrax or the 2001 American Anthrax Attacks. I'm your hostess. And I'm John. In this episode, we're fast-forwarding to the 21st century, an era that witnessed seismic shifts in science, technology, and society. And if you're listening to this, it is probably a time you've also lived through, or at least part of it. As we explore this disturbing world of bioterrorism, we'll also uncover the fascinating backdrop of scientific advancements, technological innovations, and societal changes like we've done in all the previous episodes. The 21st century dawned with the newfound optimism and promise of a brighter future, but we all know how that turned out. Scientific advancements include decoding the human genome, the rise of synthetic biology, and the groundbreaking exploration of microbiome, which you all know is my favorite. The Human Genome Project opened the doors to understanding the intricacies of our genetic code, unlocking potential cures of genetic diseases, which we are still trying to unlock to this day. Synthetic biology gave scientists unprecedented control over the building blocks of the life itself, with both the potential for great good and great harm. We are also still trying to figure all that stuff out. And the study of microbiome revealed the hidden world of microbes within us, shaping our health and even our behavior in ways we never imagined. And we are still researching that a lot. John and I, that's what we do. Sure. There's still so much to learn and unlock with synthetic biology, our human genome, and the microbial world. Technologically, there's also been a lot of advancements in the 21st century, most of which I'm sure people know. We have the rise of social media, the adjunct of the iPhone, um, the rise of online connectivity, and now no one knows how to actually talk to to each other face-to-face. Our phones becoming computers, pretty much. Yeah, more powerful than computers of the 90s at this point. But we do have some global connection and uh, a lot of ways of getting information, a lot of ways for people creating misinformation, which is definitely becoming a problem now. Societal shifts in the last 23 years were quite profound, and so many changes did occur. And I think a lot of them have been for the better. I, I don't think that we're at the Star Trek level of tolerance and empathy, but I think we are moving in a better direction as time goes by. It's a lot of Star Trek that we're not at yet that I wish we were at. Yeah, same. What is that, 23rd century? Yes, I believe so. Or oh. 24th, I can't remember. 24th, yeah. So, you know, we got a couple hundred years set yet. As long as we don't have that World War Three, Or the climate wars. Yep. As always, before we get started, if you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button. We truly appreciate each and every follower. And with your support, we can continue to grow and produce podcasts for our community of microbially enthused science and history junkies. So, John, are you ready to unravel the micro moment of the 21st century of Amerithrax? Let's hear it. Let's do it. Let's go. Let's go. The year 
2001 marked a turning point in our understanding of the devastating impact of that bioterrorism can have on a society. It was by no means the greatest bioterrorist attack that we've seen. Actually, it's probably one of the smaller as far as um, victims. But there is a considerable amount of media around it. There was a lot of various interests across the country, particularly in America. And part of this was that it occurred just weeks after the September 11th terrorist attacks, which was the biggest terrorist attacks on American soils. And there was a lot of talk on whether or not these things were connected. So when we're talking about the Amerithrax, what we're talking about is it's a series of anonymous letters containing powdered anthrax spores were mailed to media outlets and government offices, resulting in panic, illness, and loss of life. So as we look back at the American presidencies, President Nixon had originally been against bioweapon research, but between Saddam Hussein's rise of research and the use of bioweapons or the thought of use of bioweapons and the events of the biological Chernobyl in Russia in 1979, which we talked about in a previous episode, America quickly jumped back into the research on Bacillus anthracis at another previously mentioned World War II site, Fort Detrick, or better known now as the U.S. AMRID, or U-S-A-M-R-I-I-D. So I heard this in school one time, that it wasn't necessarily we were developing quote-unquote weapons. This time it was more of researching microbes to try to better protect the country if a biological attack were to happen. At least that's my understanding. Yeah, no, 100%. Um, and that's a good point to make, that they were researching more how to protect a nation. So if something like this should happen, not using them or how to use them. And this is an actually really interesting story that we... In the fact that we often, and we did in America in 2001, attribute blame to other nations or individuals who may appear different from us in terms of appearance or behavior and label them as responsible for heinous actions, like Unit, 7, like Unit 731 or the Rashnis cult. While these can be accurate on occasion, it's also important to acknowledge that our own governments can be hasty in concealing their own scandals, like the story of Porton Down, also mentioned in a previous podcast. Furthermore, sometimes the culprits within our society can be our neighbors, who are often misunderstood and reserved. That is what this story is about. Well, at least to Americans, but really across the globe, there are a tiny select few amongst humanity who are terribly disturbed and find ways of justifying all the acts which we've taken about throughout these series. And it's never an entire country who's doing these bad deeds. No, it's usually a select few. Mm-hmm. So let me take you back to October 4th, 2001. There was an isolated attack. Robert Stevens, a photo editor of the American Media Inc. in Boca Raton, Florida, went to the hospital. He has a rare disease not seen in America for some time. The man had inhaled anthrax spores after handling a letter with a strange powder. But he wasn't the only one. Ernesto Blanco worked in the mailroom of American Media Inc. He would also find himself in the hospital. Robert Stevens would eventually succumb to the disease. Despite trying not to raise mass hysteria amongst the already anxious and grieving country after the 9-11 attacks, soon the whole country would be in a heightened panic. So you said that they were trying to not make a, a panic out of this, right? Yeah. So were local like authorities or the government 
involved. I mean, it's at not this like point. they were hiding it. It's not like they were saying we're not going to report this. But anytime that you have bioweapons released, I mean, it's sort of like the COVID thing, right? When people started to uh, really get scared about COVID and it went into the media, then there was mass hysteria and we started blaming different countries for um, bringing COVID in and created a really big scare among society. So I think at at the very beginning, they didn't want to just worry the public about anthrax. Like no one really, like the general public doesn't know a lot about microbes. You say that there's a bioweapon in Florida. Now there's mass hysteria. True. It doesn't take a lot to get to that level. And there's also two people. And I guess at that point, you can't exactly discern that there's a biological attack or just someone picking or two people picking it up just by chance. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was in a letter, so that's kind of concerning. But yeah, you don't know if it's there are other letters at this point or if it was a more targeted, pinpointed uh, thing. We'll fast forward a couple days to October 12th, 2001. Eight days to be exact from our previous attack where Tom Brokaw of the NBC News received another alarming letter containing a mysterious powder that resembled sand or brown sugar. A letter that would shut down the whole building. Aaron O'Connor and Casey Chamberlain, who worked at NBC with Tom Brokaw, contracted cutaneous anthrax, which is anthrax that you usually get through cuts or small openings in your skin. And we know is a lot less deadly than... Inhalation anthrax. Yes, inhalation anthrax is for sure the most deadly and harshest of the three forms. Actually, maybe the intestinal one is, but it's super rare. Definitely said in a previous podcast. Yeah. <laughs> We've covered so much, it's, it's hard to remember. It's hard to remember. This is now like eight months of anthrax research and history. Just, just a little bit. Just a little bit. The letter that Tom Brokaw got was dated September 11th, 2001, and read, this is next, take penicillin, now death to America, death to Israel, Allah is great. This obviously and immediately seemed to be connected to the 9-11 terrorist attacks, but those terrorists were, ended up being the scapegoats for this whole thing and were not really linked to these letters. Three days later, on October 15, 2001, Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle received a suspicious letter. Later, it would be confirmed as yet another letter containing anthrax spores. It would be his intern, Grant Leslie, that would open the letter. A daily chore for Americans across the country getting the mail became a dreaded and fearful activity. We're now at the point of mass hysteria. You can't hide it anymore. They shut down the whole NBC building. And so then it was time to start figuring out, doing some genetic forensics, which I think this is probably one of the first times that we looked at DNA to try to trace back what was happening, which I think is really cool and significant. I mean, it's not super cool because of the bioterrorism um, and people were dying, but it is a, a very interesting moment in history where we can turn to genetics to start answering some criminal questions. Researchers sequenced the DNA of this powder, which contained Bacillus anthracis, and they found out it was the AIM strain. The AIM strain really wasn't in too many places, and because anthrax genomes are so highly conserved, their genomes from isolate to isolate are fairly stable. It was hard at the time to pinpoint just where the strain had originated from. 
They also found that this strain had been weaponized and the fact that it was so pure meant that this was definitely done by a highly skilled anthrax researcher with access to some very expensive equipment. Yet whoever wrote the letter had spelt penicillin wrong and made other grammatical mistakes as if to deflect the point blame on another. However, that comes back later. Put a pen in it. I will say that I'm a terrible writer. So my grammatical errors are all over the place. Sames. <laughs> so the FBI was trying to trace these back, and they tried to trace back the letters to various post office sorting facilities, one of which was at the Brentwood facility near Washington, D.C., another at the Hamilton facility in New Jersey. And this, I think, is probably the worst of this whole thing. The workers were told they were safe. But soon, a lot of them started to feel symptoms, headaches, dizziness. Two postal workers, Joe Morris and Joseph Carcine, died due to inhalation anthrax, which I think is really tragic because it did seem like the FBI was like, yeah, there's probably anthrax in here. It's going through these machines. Powder spores could potentially be released. But they're like, just keep working. Everything's fine. Yeah, I remember watching a documentary with you about it, and they were expected to work as if nothing was wrong, but there's all these people in biohazard suits fully suited up in there. It's like you expect us to be safe while you yourself is in this complete isolated like suit. Yeah, it was wild to see that. And I was like, how? How could you even say like they're safe if you want to go in with a biohazard outfit? In fact, it took a total of 10 days until they shut the facility down, and it was suggested that all the workers go get tested. 10 days until they're like, mm, maybe. And to add to that, even if you didn't know, this anthrax could have been treated with an antibiotic. So you would think that all the employees would have gotten prophylactically antibiotics to treat possible anthracic exposure. I forget the name of it. It was like Keflosporin or something like that. It's some sort of penicillin derivative or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. And it's definitely like when you think of mailing facilities, there's a lot of social economic like differences between the mailing facilities and the senators and people on the news, uh, which I think was definitely playing in here as well, which is makes it even more tragic that we're not going to help the common citizen, but we'll help people who are on TV. Uh, this, is, this is what made me the most angry about this entire thing. Mm-hmm. Do you know how quickly they shut down the building that the senator worked in? I would say immediately. Yeah, it took them a total of two hours to shut down the building. And everyone was put on antibiotics. No one was hurt. The postal facility was clearly not treated the same as the government buildings were. I scream BS on this. Yeah. Eventually, mail started to be irradiated as a form... To kill any spores. Exactly. Because of this, mail started slowing down. It was delayed as more and more precautions were being taken to stop the future spread of anthrax. Throughout this whole case, five people would die, 17 others would get sick. So like I said... All of these victims, super tragic, but in the last, what do we have, 10, 8? How many episodes do we have in this? 
I've lost track. Yeah, me too. <laughs> We've done so many. In every episode in the past of the seasons, this is probably on the lower end of our uh, victim count. But even so, with the mass hysteria, with 9-11, with hearing of all these people, it was still unknown. There was still so much unknown. They didn't know what was happening. People feared a much larger and devastating headcount was looming. In the aftermath of the anthrax letters, America went through some very hefty funding changes, which I think is very interesting. The Domestic Preparedness Fund went from $67 million in 2001 to $940 million in 2002. Damn, that's a substantial increase. Yeah. The Furthermore, the Strategic National Stockpile, which houses antibiotic supplies, among other things, went from $81 million to $1.57 billion. I don't know people cared about microbiology. Yep. Just like what happened with COVID. Gotta get those stockpiles going. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't really seem like we should give money before tragedy strikes, but that's just because I like to be prepared for things and uh, don't wait for dumpster fires to put them out. Right. But I get it. Money is money. It's like uh, the whole health healthcare system. Shouldn't we get tests done to try to prevent a disease instead of just treating yeah the disease yeah but yeah it's also just crazy that they can change that much money around in a year 81 million to 1.57 billion that's a huge difference it is Mm. so the case would drag on 2002 they had very little leads the anthrax hoax letters were being sent everywhere. The U.S. FBI raised the reward on information from $1 million to $2.5 million. And, which I think this was really interesting, I didn't know this prior, but the FBI even got the American Society of Microbiology, a.k.a. ASM, for which we've reported on conferences from the society, I think at least twice in the last two years. Anyways, the FBI got the... 42,000 microbiologist mailing lists are from ASM to ask for help and to inquire if anyone thought any of their colleagues or people that they knew might be capable of this. I mean, it makes sense. This is a very specific field of research. Like You talk to a regular investigator, no one, they're not going to know about microbiology. You got to reach out to the experts. Yeah, no, I think it was a very smart thing, but it's something that I guess I, I didn't think that they would do. But the email ended up in Nancy Haywood's inbox. She was a senior scientist at the Seattle Biomedical Research Institute and a professor at the University of Washington in Seattle. She immediately thought of one person that might be capable of this. Bruce Ivins. Bruce. So... Who is this Bruce Ivins? Dr. Bruce Ivins worked at the U.S. Armed and was well known to the FBI investigating this case after all. He was a leading expert in Bacillus anthracis, which I think is another really interesting thing with this case, is that the FBI has to turn to experts, and they're also looking for an expert who was capable of this. So your people that you have to rely on for help may just very well be the culprits. Uh, Dr. Bruce Ivins was working in the U.S. Armored, and he was doing research on a new anthrax vaccine. But let's back up just a bit and talk a little bit more about Dr. Bruce Ivins. He had been working at the U.S. Armored for decades. In 2001, with the political landscape changing, the Clintons were 
out and the Bush administration took over. And with it came a shift in interest into bioweapons, like we said from uh, Nixon. He wasn't interested, which I also think is really interesting as political as politics change, as we move from democratic to republic to democratic, whatever it is, all of these different interests also change and money dries up in various sectors. And one way that the Bush administration changed stuff at the U.S. AMRID is they had a shift in interest in bioweapons, both on the defensive side, which was what Bruce Ivins was doing, and on the offensive side of research, although there wasn't that much research in that at the time, at least that we don't know of. In August 2001, so August kind of before the 9-11 tax, two months before the anthrax letters, the U.S. AMRAD was considering shutting down nearly all the research on Bacillus anthracis. Ivins was even asked if he would work on another disease we've talked about quite a bit throughout the series. Any guesses? Oof. Another disease. Tularemia? No. Does infect not humans. We talked about it in World War One, World War Two. Oh, is that the um? I can't remember what it was, but that's the one that affected horses, right? Yeah, glanders. Glanders. Mm-hmm. Many of Bruce's colleagues didn't think that he could do it, but they would call him eccentric. But they respected him as a researcher. Some other things about Bruce Ivins, he had a wife, he adopted two kids, he liked juggling, he taught juggling a lot of times, Um, they both were church-going. But let's back up even more to the 1970s, to his postdoc years, where he was making unwanted advancements towards a graduate student that we've heard about before, Nancy Hagwood. He became like her stalker, calling and emailing her throughout the years, asking her about her kids and families, details which she never thought she told him, which is so creepy. That is creepy. No, no, no. That's very unsettling. I hate that so much. He quickly became a suspect in the investigation. He worked at the facility where the AIM strain was, and he was a leading scientist there. However, if he wasn't the perpetrator, he would also be an immense help to the FBI's investigation. So they had to tread the line very delicately. But the nation was also in the utmost panic, and the FBI had to be making progress every day. They were under immense pressure to stop these attacks and find the person responsible. Bruce Ivins was known to be demanding to pry into personal details, perhaps too early in relationships. He played the piano, the banjo. He was a fast talker, socializer. He was even excited and enthusiastic about his work, creating a new vaccine for Bacillus anthracis. And so for many, he hardly seemed like the stalker that Nancy Haywood had described. And of course, this is prior to the Me Too movement where women had a lot harder time saying that this is what's happening. I mean, also, we've consumed a lot of true crime and there's always seems to be like two sides of people in those. Very true. Very true. So let's go back to the AIM strain a little bit. There were 15 labs known to work with the AIM strain. So that narrows it down right there. And whole genome sequencing was all the rage in these days and wasn't long around this period that we're doing human genome sequencing. I think it was 1995, the first. So in 1995, the first bacterial genome were sequenced. Oh, it was Haemophilus influenza. No, that's a virus. No, it's bacteria. Oh, is it? Grim negative diplococci. Oh, 
I mean, I thought the flu was a virus. They originally thought that the flu was caused by a bacteria because a lot of the patients that had the flu would come in, they would culture the sputum and Haemophilus influenza was in there. And it turned out that was causing secondary infections to the flu. So that's why you have the virus called influenza because they originally thought it was a bacteria. Well, that clears that up. <laughs> All right, so we're starting to do genomics. We're starting to do comparative genomics. We've been sequencing bacteria for about six years, and we were about to sequence a whole lot more to try to figure out what we were doing here with the Amerithrax incident. So they started doing comparative genomics uh, on the isolate from the various AIM strains across various labs. They even got one from the Port and Down strain, which is in Britain, the other, the Britain equivalent, uh, essentially, of the US AMRED. But they found them all to be identical, except for the Port and Down strain, which had its plasmids removed, and they knew that because that's what the British were doing at the time. Oh, wait. We talked about that strain in a previous episode, right? Yes. This one, one of the cults tried to weaponize it. Yeah. Be, uh, but they couldn't because it had the pathogenic um, plasmids were destroyed mm-hmm. in it. Yeah. But they didn't try to. No, I th- yeah, I think. That was the Japanese cult, I think. Yeah, the Japanese cult did it with the pasture strain, different than the AIM strain. Oh. Yeah. But Porton Down was a place that had dark harvest oh, where people weren't okay. trying to get people sick, but they were like, hey, government, you have contaminated the soil and we'd like you to come pick it up. So much anthrax throughout history. So much anthrax. But we only, in this comparative genome, in this first comparative genomic study, they only had a very small sample size, the 15 strains. And so they wanted to get more and more strains so they could do better comparative genomics and have a larger pool to identify differences within the genomes. They went on a full countrywide microbe hunt requiring labs across the nation to stand in their AIM strain isolates. Each scientist across the 15 labs and a few foreign labs as well as were required to send the sample of their strains to undergo DNA analysis and to be stored in a repository for further testing. But it would be another little genetic difference that helped pinpoint the strain. They would pinpoint it to the U.S. AMRED facility. Every scientist there were experts, but now they were also suspects. So we narrowed down the pool of suspects. Yes. So nine months would go by when a mysterious Mr. Z would come onto the scene. Mr. Z was described by a New York Times writer, Nicholas Kristoff. Mr. Z was thought to be a government insider who was the anthrax murderer, but was being protected by the government. Mr. Z would later be unveiled to be Mr. Hatfill, although no one is really sure when or how or why this name became associated with Mr. Z. At least I couldn't really find it in all of my research. And... In the beginning, he seemed like a decent suspect for this. He was fired from the U.S. AMRED in 1999, two years prior to the attacks. And he was fired from another military group a few months before the anthrax attacks. So perhaps he was a little angry at the government. Hatfield Sioux came under intense scrutiny, and we mean intense, like round-the-clock surveillance and, by many standards, a great misconduct of our judicial system. They were on top of them. But he was a person of interest in the biggest bioterrorist attacks in the nation, in the nation's recent history. 
Yeah. Because we've talked about others. Right. Many said the only bioterrorist attack at the time, but obviously, you know, if you've been listening to this episode in this series, you know that this is 100% wrong. It was just the one with the most media, I think. We can say the first one in the 21st century. Yes. Unfortunately, Hatfield had enough evidence, enough things supporting the fact that he could have done it, but there was not any sort of hard evidence saying he did do it. So there is a couple things that came out as reasons why he couldn't have done it. First off, he was a virologist. I'm not saying virologists aren't capable of doing bacterial work, but virology and bacteriology are very different in their research. How you propagate the cells, how you grow them, how you would weaponize them. Very different. Right. So as Steve Hatfell became under this intense FBI scrutiny, he was quiet for a little bit, but eventually it became way too much. And he had a public statement declaring that he had nothing to do with this. And the FBI continued their investigation, even though they were also trailing Hatfield at this time. And after further and more careful examination, there was another clue that emerged, a distinctness in one of the letters. The colony's morphology, a fancy word for physical characteristics of bacterial colonies, was different from some of the other AIM strains. It appeared to be more yellowy-gray than (laughs) gray-yellow. Oh, so different. I know. Uh, Genetic testing would reveal signatures between the Amerithrax strain and the other AIM strains. So they were getting a little bit closer and identifying that there were some differences. And once we know there are some differences, maybe we can trace it back to its origin. And maybe that origin belongs to a person. And at this point, they had over a thousand strains from across the country of this AIM strain to test. Which is also kind of scary that there are a thousand different strains of this potential bio weapon across the country. But I imagine that's probably true for a lot of things because there's lots of academics doing research on biosecurity, lots of government labs doing things on biosecurity. And I imagine there is a very intense process to make sure that what they are doing and the research that they're doing is in the right direction. Yeah, I'm sure the same strain is not commercially available. Oh, no. Yeah, you probably have to put a permit in, write a proposal, plea to the government. A lot of uh, red tape to get through. A lot of red tape, I imagine. So a thousand strains may not seem like a lot today. It's really not because our compute power is so high. We have pipelines doing a thousand strains. Not a big deal today, but... We're talking about the early 2000s. This was a very costly and challenging problem. Today, you can sequence and annotate a bacterial genome for less than 150 bucks. But back then, we're talking significantly more money. The human genome was sequenced in 2003, two years later, and that was a huge undertaking of two labs and a bunch of machines running constantly. And about $2.7 billion. So, yeah, this was costly. I think now it's about $1,000 human genome sequencing. Yeah, so now it's about 1000 Some people can probably do it for $400, depending on your service errands. They keep saying we're going to get closer to the $100 human genome, um, which is what we are currently at with bacteria. So it's going to take some time, but we are moving in that direction, which is kind of crazy. Then it's only been 20 years and has been reduced that much. At any rate, back in the 2000s, sequencing was not cheap. 
So sequencing a thousand strains, not terribly easy. Whole genome sequencing was less than a decade old. Like we said, 1995. Um, it's only really six years old. Well, seven years old in 2002, which I think is where we are in history. And only a handful of microbes had whole genomes sequence at this time. So doing comparative genomics was actually really new and novel as well. By 2003, the investigation was still ongoing. Hatfield still was the public suspect, but there was no more evidence to surface. And as time goes on, it's harder and harder to find that evidence and start linking these things back out. And one thing that I thought was kind of interesting is in the whole in this whole investigation, the FBI conducted almost 10,000 interviews. 10,000. Uh, so many people like I know you have to rule out a bunch of people, but still. Yeah, they tried real hard in a lot of ways. In 2004, it was found out that Bruce Ivins found some more anthrax strains he forgot to give the FBI for the AIM strain collection. He also made comments that others seemed to be missing, too, from his collection. All in all, the AIM strain repository consisted of 1,070 isolates with about 600 strains from the U.S. AMRID, which is a lot of strains of anthrax. Yeah. By 2006, so we're now five years after the initial attacks, there was still no clear direction, but science had advanced a lot. Whole genome sequencing was now a common practice and could be done much more quickly as well as cost a lot less. And so in continuing to do whole genome sequencing on the strains, we could get so much more information than we had before. The letters contained four different morphotypes, and it was the job of four independent labs to test all the samples and try to find the sample that contained all four morphotypes, which were known as A1, A3, D, and E. Of the nearly 1,000 samples, eight had all the morphotypes, and seven came from the same location, the AUS AMRED. And what I think is so cool, and I never really understood how they could do this, but the AIM strain could be traced back to a single lab in a single cooler in a single flask, RMR-1029. Which is, how did they have that same flask full of Bacillus anthracis for five years? Did they have the flask, or they just were able to trace it back to a flask that had it? Oh, yeah, I don't know. If they just If they recorded that information when they were collecting the strains. Yeah, I'm sure there's, like, a paper trail, like, especially if this is a new strain, like... Let's bring it all the way back to this specific one. Yeah. You'll never believe who owned the flask. I have an idea. Bruce Ivins. Yep. But also, the flask wasn't just something that Bruce Ivins owned. It was the source of Bacillus anthracis from a variety of experiments throughout the years conducted by a handful of scientists. The investigation obviously took a drastic U-turn back to the U.S. AMRED at this point, but Bruce Ivins wasn't the only one who touched the flask. They were thinking about 200 people had access to the flask in the two-year period leading up to the attacks. 
but no one seemed to be a stronger candidate than Bruce Ivins. So I do think like this is super interesting that they were able to get all these different strains, they had a thousand different strains using bioinformatics, using whole genome sequencing. They could narrow it down to eight of those strains. And then from using the paper trail into understanding where these came from, they could understand that the majority of those eight strains come from a single flask. And that single flask was touched by about 200 people in the two years prior to the attacks. Bioinformatics is awesome. (laughs) Just saying. And so they started to look at Bruce Ivins a little bit more. He had logged a lot of nighttime hours around the time of the original events back in 2001. And people went back to his original interviews with the FBI, analyzing his quotes and seeing how he might be deflecting or seeing how his answers might be guiding the investigation away from pointing at him. Or maybe he was just trying to help. You know, sometimes it's really hard. You look back at those interviews in that lens and you're like, yep, I can totally see it. But you're also looking at it through a lens and uh, it's going to be colored in a certain way. But Bruce Ivins also had a lot of other boxes that ticked off for the FBI's most probable suspect details. One, he was an expert in Bacillus anthracis. He was building or he was trying to develop a new vaccine for it. He often worked late when no one else was in the lab. Several nights, his wife didn't even know or didn't realize he was even there, which kind of makes his alibi seem a little off. And he had struggled with mental health issues. From what I could find, it was probably bipolar disorder or potentially split personality disorder, but he may not have been diagnosed or you know, therapists aren't exactly going to reveal that information, I don't think, either. Right. But he was constantly grappling with his good and bad side of his self. In emails to colleagues, he described his mental anguish, which alongside depression also included dissociative episode, anger, delusions, and paranoia, which are often things not associated with bipolar, but usually in split personality or schizophrenia, you get the paranoia, you get the delusions. That's what I was wondering a little bit. Was it uh, schizophrenia possibly? I don't know. I, I couldn't really find an exact thing. We're also talking 2001. I feel like mental health has not really been like a thing, a topic of anything except in the last like five years. And he had some strange mailing behaviors as well. He'd have multiple P.O. boxes in various locations. He would drive to remote locations to send mail under a false identity all the time. Just super suspicious. Yeah, to who? Yeah, just people, I guess. I don't know. But his colleagues were like, no, this idea is absurd. It can't be Bruce. Any weird behaviors was just Bruce being Bruce after all. But the FBI weren't so convinced. They started looking more and more closely at Bruce's emails, both at work and personal. Bruce had an unhealthy obsession with the KKG sorority, an obsession that had, for some 50 years, after being turned down by one of their members. It was creepy. It was repulsive. But how could it be evidence he was the culprit behind the 2001 anthrax attacks? Yeah, I don't really see a motive. Mm. Yeah, this one was was hard. It was circumstantial at best, in my opinion. They were able to track the P.O. box that two of the letters was sent from was right down the street from a KKG sorority. The FBI also asked Nancy Hagwood, perhaps a source of his obsession, to get back in contact with him and try to bait anything out of him. I guess I could see two motives here. 
Uh, a lot of his weird characteristics like doesn't really point to anything, but the fact that the facility before this was they were thinking about closing it and he was worried about job security and the fact that he was trying to make a vaccine, like was he that passionate that he was gonna send this out so he could continue his work? Yeah, I mean I think it is a definite motive and like what I mean, honestly, to get more money into your research is kind of proving like, hey, we do need an an a vaccine for anthrax. Look, bioweapons do exist. This is a concern. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that is a big motive that could potentially lead to Bruce Ivins being the criminal here. The FBI were also pretty determined. They kept continuing to search his office, search his home took samples and swabs from a variety of places. But again, we're talking this is over five years from the initial time of the crime. So it's not very surprising that not a lot of anthrax spores are found in his house or on his clothing at this point. But the surveillance continued. They were watching him day and night. And Ivan's once came out looking very paranoid and ended up throwing something away. And so the investigators decided to dig through his trash a little bit. And what they found was a book on composing complex ciphers based on DNA sequences. But I'm like, what? Why is there a book written about complex ciphers based on DNA sequences? Doesn't that seem very specific, says the girl who's read like 18 books about bioterrorism in the last eight months. I mean, yes, especially back then. It's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know. I kind of want to read it, but I guess it's also a suspicious thing to read, apparently. So as the pressure would mount on Bruce as he was a suspect and being constantly trailed, it's obviously going to lead to a lot of stress. With anyone who has mental health knows that stress is a big trigger to start entering into an ever-darkening depressive state. And as many people also know... As you enter into darker depressive states, you turn to some not so great coping mechanisms such as alcohol and sleeping pills to drown out your problems or like any pills, really. But that's what Bruce turned to, alcohol and sleeping pills and some anxiety pills, too, that was um, prescribed. But I think he was overtaking a lot of them. In 2008, the FBI interviews Bruce again but this time looking at it through the lens of him being a suspect and less of him being an expert. I mean, he's still an expert, but you know what I mean. And it was a fairly aggressive interview trying to corner Bruce and figure out how to ask the right questions, cornering him by revealing items they found in his trash, such as the ciphering book of DNA. The original letters, remember when I told you it was spelled, there were some weird spelling things? Right. There was also some weird letters bolded, certain letters like A and T. The alphabet of DNA. The alphabet of DNA, exactly. So the FBI was pretty sure they finally had their guy. And Bruce continued to become withdrawn. He continued to be isolated. He stopped sleeping. He started drinking a lot. He was in crisis mode. He felt trapped. Not long after, Bruce Ivins was found unconscious in his bathroom. He had taken copious amounts of Tylenol mixed with some codeine. His liver was failing. He died shortly after, surrounded by his wife and two kids. Fort Dietrich held a memorial service for him. And with that, the FBI closed the books on the 2001 anthrax attacks and their investigation on Bruce Ivins. 
Some people came to his defense claiming he couldn't have done it. Others still thought they must have been from a foreign source. Others remained quiet, trying to remember Bruce as the hard worker of the U.S. Amrid that he was for nearly 30 years. But did Bruce do it on purpose, out of guilt, out of the pressure, out of feeling there was no other escape, out of the pressure of the FBI thinking the government were going to pin him no matter what? Or did Bruce's unstable mental state play a role in his suicide or death? If he did do it, did he know he did it? Was he playing everybody and saw this whole thing was now closing in on him? Or was it an accidental overdose of a man clearly undergoing a mental crisis and just trying to sleep? Yeah, that, I don't know. Like, in terms of the suicide, uh, you know, people can overdose from Tylenol without even knowing it. Yeah, exactly. Like, it could have been. I mean, he was drinking a lot that messes with your brain and your ability to make good choices he was popping pills a lot for anxiety and sleeping and they they say don't ever drink and take Tylenol at the same time because they both affect your liver yeah so it could have been an admittance of guilt and trying to get out so he wouldn't have to go to trial it could have been an accident but regardless the fbi were like well we'll close the books on it he's dead we're pretty sure it was him but they'll never really know. No, there's still controversy today, right? Like, mm -hmm. it's very divided. People say he did it, didn't do it, but we'll never 100% know. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the evidence that I found on him. A lot of it, I think, is compelling, but a lot of it I can also see not being so compelling. I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to think about, like, if he did or didn't do it because... What, it was only a span of a couple of weeks that these letters went out? Yeah, which I also thought was interesting that it was started and stopped so quickly. Like, it wasn't that long of a time. And if the person was out there and they wanted to commit these really terrible, tragic bioterrorist acts, why would they stop after about five, five or so letters? Like, this thing went on for seven more years. No one had any leads until about 2008. Yeah, and nothing happened during that time, so. Yeah, I think that's super interesting. It's one of the things that gets me, right? Because, like, it happened and then nothing. And that the only thing that I can really say that if it was him, the whole being worried that his job was going to end and this is a way to get it going, at least to me. Yeah, and then after that, they did have a lot more money. So he was like, okay, I'm okay now. And I can understand for like a while, like to not do it if you're going to do it again, right? You got to let the heat die down. Yeah. And then, well, don't listen to us on how to properly uh, do a terrorist attack. We're not condoning that. But anyways. I mean, yeah, I think everyone knows that. You like heat die down. But yeah, it just, see it just seems weird how long it went on and how unsatisfyingly it ended yeah like it just was very tragic all the way around uh, especially when you're dealing with people that seem to have altered mental states and and sort of mental disorders and um not getting the help that they need no i can see him being the the most likely suspect but at the end of the day we don't we never know and 
uh, something they kind of alluded to. The FBI were very aggressive in this investigation. Like the first person that they pointed out, they ruined his name. Yeah. I mean, I think one time I heard, I, I think I heard that one time when they were surveying Hatfield, they actually ran over his foot, like in a cop car, in a surveillance car. And, you know, Hatfield sued the government for an infringement of his privacy and won $5.8 million from the way that the FBI treated him. So, yeah, I can definitely, like, the way that they were just on people had to be super stressful. And I can see people wanting to figure out ways to get out of that. But, again, going back to the tragedy of the postal employees, they also filed a class act lawsuit against the Postal Service, but the case was dismissed. Yeah, that angered me, too, when I was watching that documentary. It said that they they weren't awarding anything. And I'm wondering, I mean, I'm no legal expert. I'm wondering if it's, like, the specific way that they sued the U.S. government, yeah, like, did they go after, well. like, this one thing and technically it didn't fulfill that, you know, that requirement, so it was dismissed. But I, no one had to die at that postal service. And it could have easily or been harmed in, like I said, antibiotics. And most of them, if not all, would have been okay. But- yeah, yeah. Perhaps the biggest silver lining out of all this was microbial forensics. So... This field was born, of course, out of necessity, but it emerged as a powerful tool in unraveling the mysteries behind the attacks. With surging of funding, the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, which is the U.S. AMRAD, which I probably should have said about 40 minutes ago, resurged as a hub of bioterrorism research and preparedness. Security measures, of course, were heightened across the country from government buildings to everyday life, and the CDC assumed a more prominent role in safeguarding public health. It was indeed a tragic and world-altering event, but amidst the changes in security and bioterrorism preparedness, one crucial issue remained largely unaddressed, and this is an issue that I always think gets unaddressed in so many different tragic events. In America. I can't speak for the other parts of the world, but I imagine this is probably a global thing that no one really wants to tackle because it's so hard and complicated. And so it's so much easier to blame other things. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, is it mental health? Yes. Too often in the 21st century, we have seen the most tragic of events be rooted in mental health crises. We've seen so many like school shootings or mass shootings and you're not in a very stable mental state if that's what you think is going to help you. So much, I think, of these could be solved if we had better mental health services and surveillance, really, because I think a lot of people don't want to go to mental health, but maybe they should, and we just don't have the right tools and the right services and the right knowledge to the public about how to handle these things. It's often overlooked for tangible things like the actual microbe, not the microbe's fault, like guns, not the gun's fault, it's the people behind them. <sighs> Anyways, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> so much has changed in the realm of national security and the aftermath of 9-11 and the American anthrax attacks. The American public is still hesitating to tackle the pressing issues of mental health 
But I do think we are improving. But it has taken a lot, a lot of lives in the last 20 years for people to be like, wow, maybe mental health is important. Okay, I got back on my soapbox. I'm going to get off again. But I'm going to get on a different soapbox. Once again, I just want to say the microbes are not the villains here. It is the humans, specifically vicious humans, who manipulate our microbes for evil. But what if you had the power to stop these villains? In the wake of such tragedies, we often ponder the what ifs, the wonder how many lives might have been changed if someone had simply reached out, offered a listening ear, or provided a beacon of light to someone in their darkest days. I'm back on the sofa. <laughs> it just, it just, oh, it just angers me so much. I think, I don't know, I think America sometimes fears emotions more than they fear guns. And yet, it's often the emotional well-being of individuals that ultimately shapes the collective health of our community and nations. And I swear I'm off my soapbox now. So, my dear friends, in this final episode of Bioterrorism, for reals this time, I promise, we have a unique request. Take a moment to reach out to someone in your network who you might be struggling, who might be carrying a heavy burden, or who might simply need someone to talk to. Extend a hand of compassion Lend an empathetic ear and be the beacon of light in someone else's life. You might just be the hero to stop a villain. Potential villain. Potential villain. In the end, it's these small acts of kindness, understanding, and human connection that can make all the difference, not just in individuals' lives, but in the fabric of our society as a whole. So as we conclude our exploration of bioterrorism, for which we have explored quite a lot, let us also remember the power of the microbial world and the good it can do for our society. We've talked a lot about Bacillus anthracis, both the good and the evil, talking about how Bacillus anthracis has actually brought about germ theory, has brought about a lot of change in the medical system, has also been the culprit or has also been a weapon of choice for a lot of bioterrorists throughout history. But it's not the microbe's fault. Thank you for joining us on this journey of bioterrorism. And may we all continue to strive for a world where kindness, positive micro moments, and human connection prevails. It's been an absolute pleasure to be your host for the micro moment, to be your guide through the micro moments throughout history from bioterrorism to biographies. We hope you enjoyed listening. Feed your microbes. Feed your guts. And make your microbes love you lots. Bye. Bye.